Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Greetings, fellow time travelers! As always, it's great to have you along as we travel side by side through time and space together. Before we begin today's journey, I just want to say a huge thanks, as I so often do, to everyone who helps support the making of this podcast series by joining up to my patreon.com site. Uh, It's by being there and by making the financial contribution there uh, that everything else is made possible. Uh, Those who support us in that way, you get exclusive access to a weekly question and answer session, which is kind of done as live. It's, It's as close as I can get to being with you. We do competitions and you get early access to the monologues and you know you get to hear what I'm thinking before anybody else. So if you're not a member yet and you'd like to be, just go to patreon.com, search for me by name, follow the steps, part with a little bit of cash and you'll be, become a member of the family, the extended family of time travellers. Okay, that's the advert over. It's now time to strap into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. The most dangerous man in Britain, born and raised into a world where the educated believed in the creation story in the Bible. On his journey of discovery, he steps ashore on a continent that had been moving north for the best part of 200 million years. Encountering a strange creature, the wheels of his mind are sent whirling, eventually crystallising thoughts and theories that are destined to change humankind's understanding of itself and thereby the story of the world. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Morning, Neil. Last week we explored the terrible stain on human history that in one form or another is tragically with us still. Where are we this week? Hi, Paul. Yes, last week's episode was bleak. Uh, It was about the almost industrial enslavement of millions of bodies and minds. In this episode, we're focusing in on one mind, a mind that was set free by his extraordinary voyage of discovery, an open, engaged and brilliant mind. It's 1836 and we're stepping ashore in New South Wales, Australia with Charles Darwin. I can't even think now if we've been to this particular uh, territory before, but we're in, uh, well, we're going to be in Australia. 
basically. Have we? Have we been in Terra Australis already on the love letter? I'm not quite sure. It's going to be focusing on Charles Darwin and, you know, obviously his origin of species thinkings. I've spent a lot of time in Australia and New Zealand, the Antipodes, let's say. So these stories resonate with me very strongly because I can... I'm, I spent months in the landscape uh, and I saw wild places in Australia and wild places in New Zealand. And so when I hear the names, I, it conjures up all sorts of emotions for me. So there's that backstory for me about why these places and these stories matter to me in the way that they do, very personally. They're not remote in that sense. So from the Greek philosophers onwards, people were contemplating what, what the world was. Uh, how it was constituted, how it fitted into infinity. And for the longest time, because people were aware that, or increasingly they became aware that they were occupying the northern half of a ball, right? They they had conceptualised and persuaded themselves that it was a sphere, and they had a sense that everyone they knew (laughs) was above the equator. So they they began to, a lot of them from the earliest times, there was a, a, a hunch really that somewhere down on the bottom half there had to be a landmass. Because believe it or believe it not, the thinking was that if you had all this land on the top and all these people on the land on the top, that if it was only like that, that the, the ball would, would turn upside down you know, for, because of all the weight. And so they, so they, they hypothesised, there was a, an abiding hypothesis that they couldn't test or prove in any meaningful way because of the distances, that there had to be something down on the bottom of the world as a counterbalance. It's a fascinating idea. And they called it Terra Australis, the southern land. So they, they knew it was there, even though they couldn't prove it. It's one of those really fascinating, is it Mendeleev that came up with the periodic table? There'll be a poster of it on every science classroom wall, you know, the periodic table. Mendeleev had had realised something about the elements. He put them in order on the periodic table with an atomic number. What is it? Is it the number of electrons or whatever that are orbiting the nucleus? And and he and he so he put them in order based on this logic. And at his time of writing we knew about fewer elements than we know about now. But Mendeleev, with his periodic table, he was able to, and actually driven to leaving squares blank on the table, because although he didn't know what the elements were, he knew they must exist. He knew their atomic number. So not only did he know they must exist, he knew where they were in the periodic table. It's fascinating. And sure enough, Over time, more of the elements that that he had predicted came to be identified by further endeavour by scientific types. So there was this predictive reasoning there. You see, I I know it must be there. And and furthermore, I have a rough idea of what it must be like. And you get into that with Darwinian thinking and you get into it with this uh, idea that the, the ancients had that although they couldn't get to the south of the planet, they had a pretty good idea of what had to be there in order for the whole thing to make sense. And I, I find that people were coming to these realisations without the means of 
going there or proving it. I, I think that's amazing. And so, sure enough, you know, time time passed. The centuries moved on. The the great ages of exploration uh, made it possible for people to sail around the world. That that was the thing. The sailing ships, and once they got the hang of the appropriate sails and the appropriate rigging, and they began to understand navigation based on you know the constellations and the movements of the planet. Off they went. And so by the very early 17th century, for example, a Dutchman, a Dutch navigator and mariner called Willem Janszoon, he was in, well, he was in the Gulf of Carpentaria in Australia by 1606. James Cook, Captain Cook, Englishman, uh, he was in Botany Bay by 1770. The first European settlement, as everyone knows that's got any kind of connection to Australia, was in Sydney in 1788. So very rapidly, once that first contact was made, really in the scheme of things, I mean, obviously you're talking about decades and centuries, but in the scheme of things, it's pretty quick. From from all that time of the European world, the, the old world being unaware of what was actually down in the southern hemisphere, you know, they started to get on top of it pretty quickly. As I see, I've done my time in in Australia uh, I don't know I probably spent if I added it all together I, I probably spent a couple of years altogether in Australia and New Zealand in the years since let me think 2013 so spread through that time I, I must have spent a couple of years down there and there's no getting away from the fact that even in this modern world of modern travel and modern communications and all of the rest of it when you're in Australia you really do feel as if you're far away you know, because of the time, if you're in Sydney and you phone Scotland, if it's evening for you, it's it's breakfast for them, or, or or vice versa. And so there's a very strong sense of dislocation, even though the comms are possible and Zoom calls and video calls and all the rest of it, you still feel that you're almost on another planet. And that, for me, that feeling was very, very strong. And I, I, I ran across a book when I was down there, it's a, it's a classic by a historian, an Australian historian called Geoffrey Blaney, and it's called the, the Tyranny of Distance. I think it's even called that. But certainly within the book, he writes about the tyranny of distance, that once the Europeans started colonising Terra Australis, the southern land, they were, they were living under the great tyranny of the, of the distance. When you were there, you were years from home in every way that mattered also it's well known what the the terrible you know really unforgivable impact of Europe the European nations upon Australia in the first place and then in in New Zealand but in, in Australia we know all about the way in which that contact so adversely affected the indigenous people of Australia. It's a dreadful, sad story, actually, that continues unfolding, sadly, to this day. So it's a it's a whole cocktail of stories and, and feelings and emotions and connections and disconnections that, that seem to me to uh, be the story of the connection between the the northern world and the southern world. 
all of the feelings are only intensified when you start coming to terms with the geological processes that that had to come into play to shape the southern world, and in the same way that the northern world had been shaped over unimaginable stretches of time. Now, hundreds of millions of years ago, uh, in Earth's history, much of the southern hemisphere was occupied by a, a supercontinent. You maybe heard the supercontinents. It's this idea of the, of the the land masses that for us are kind of broken up either side of oceans. Hundreds of millions of years ago, they were all together. It was all one great amorphous swathe of dry land. And geologists have, have come up with the name Gondwana or Gondwana land for that supercontinent of, of several hundred million years ago. But something like, and it can only ever really be approximate, something like 200 million years ago, Gondwana started to break up. You know, we know now about tectonic plates and how, you know, you know, like the, the shapes on a, on, a, on a football that are stitched together to make... The, well, it's like that with, with planet Earth. And it's different uh, jigsaw pieces that fit together. But courtesy of the, the molten rock underneath, they move about. They're, they're moving. They're, they're, they're like rafts adrift on a molten ocean. And the movement is languid beyond conception it's generally so slow I and mean, there are there are periods of violent upheaval but for most of the time the the forces at play are moving things around imperceptibly slowly but around 200 million years ago you might say those familiar with Ayn Rand writer and philosopher woman Atlas shrugged you might say and the, and there was a there was suddenly a, a relatively speaking a, 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 an upheaval in Gondwana, and Gondwana started to break up. It, that which had been a, a, a shapeless hole began to fragment. Great fissures started to open up. And over unimaginably long periods of time, water, the sea, filled those spaces, filled the voids as they grew. And so you then saw the continent breaking apart, the supercontinent breaking apart, and the formation into the spaces between, of say, the Southern Ocean the South Atlantic, the Indian Ocean, all of these massive bodies of water then began to, to fill spaces as the, as the supercontinent of Gondwana broke up. The lump that would eventually be Australia, it was moving as well. Now, it was moving away from the rest of Gondwana approximately at the speed at which fingernails grow. That's what, that's what we're dealing with. So imperceptible in terms of the, the lives lived by the creatures that, that populated those places. So at the speed of fingernails, it, it's, Australia is still moving north and closer to Asia, even as we speak. It covers something like 70 millimetres a year, <laughs> which is you know obviously not a lot for something the size of Australia. But that, that process of, of, of Australia drifting and nudging north and, and putting geological pressure on the Asian continent, that's going on r right now. But when Gondwana was Gondwana, it was thriving with life. And amongst others, it was populated by a form of mammalian life called marsupial, marsupials. The things with pouches. 
marsupials are mammals. They're just a variation on the theme of mammals. The offspring are born live, but very, very incomplete, at a very, very early stage of existence. And they then crawl into their, into their mother's pouches, and the rest of their kind of gestation or preparation for life or whatever goes on inside the pouch. And, that, and that's, the, you know, that's the defining characteristic of the marsupial. Do you know what the characteristics are of a mammal? Three things, and three things only. A covering of uh, hair or fur, the presence of breasts and breast milk for the young, and three bones in the inner ear. That's it. That's it. If you've got them, you're a mammal. <laughs> I think that's extraordinary. But the point, the point is that once upon a time, there were marsupials all over Gondwana. And then as uh, another bit of Gondwana that broke away and started to do its own thing was South America. And once upon a time, there were marsupials all over South America as well. But in the fullness of time, South America collided with North America. And by then, there were more variations on the theme of mammal abroad on the northern territory. More fecund, more fertile, faster, better adapted to the available terrain. And they, and they wiped out the, the marsupials that had been on South America all of that time. So that's why eventually South America was just filled with mammals that we're all familiar with. However, the bit that was Australia was like a life raft, a gargantuan life raft, upon which marsupials were safe. They were, they were out in the open sea, in a, adrift, and nothing could get at them to make their lives impossible. So for, you know, for all those millions of years, while that languid motion of of the continent of Australia was drifting up towards Asia, the marsupials were all safe and well and continued to reign supreme. And it was only after tens of millions of years that Asia was close enough that other forms of mammal life began to make contact with the continent, including Homo sapiens, including us. But once that contact was made, then, you know, the, the, the situation began to shift. But Nonetheless, Australia is still a land of marsupials because enough time and devastation hasn't been wrought by the rest of the world you know, to significantly and meaningfully alter that, although species have disappeared and become extinct. So, a critical moment in the story of the world, as far as we're concerned here in this podcast, happens in January 1836. And that's the time and the place when Charles Darwin... Charles Darwin comes together with Terra Australis. Uh, so he steps ashore, and by, by that point, he's four years into the voyage of the HMS Beagle. He's a rich man's son. When he joined the Beagle, he was he was an enthusiastic naturalist, come botanist, come biologist, but he was untrained. He was born into a family where, where the intention was he was going to grow up to be a clergyman. That was the ambition that his family had for him. He was a direct descendant of Erasmus Darwin, who was a naturalist, and also, on the other side of the family, Josiah Wedgwood, uh, he of the great pottery family, the ceramics people. So that was his lineage, and that's why there was money. And so Darwin was, was born the kind of person who could just indulge whims. He didn't need to earn a living. There was money there. 
And so he was what scholar. Scholar, we think about scholar as being someone that you know goes to school, but really scholar implies leisure. Scholar Im- implies the freedom to just think. And Charles Darwin was one of those. And as I say, the intention had been that he was going to be a man of the cloth, but he he defied peacefully and quietly and without much rancor. He took a different path and he followed the the ways of science. So he gets the opportunity to be aboard HMS Beagle and he's been all over the shop, seasick every day of his life. Can you imagine? He's on a voyage without end on a, on a ship around the world and he's always and only seasick. So he suffers for his science. Uh, but by January 1836, he rucks up on Australia. And the moment, the, the moment within the moment, he, he's in a place called Wallarawang. Let me just give you some coordinates there. That would be to the west of the Blue Mountains in the central tablelands of Australia. Uh, really just a wide spot in the road, I, I suppose you would say, Wallarawang. The place name, it's so Australian sounding, isn't it? You know instantly that you're talking about somewhere in Australia. It's a corruption of a name used by the Wiradjuri uh, indigenous people in that patch of Australia. And if it means anything, it's something like lots of water. So they had identified it as a place where they could get water. It was a sort of a riverine landscape. And so Darwin is rucked up there and he's taken out on the evening towards you know, late afternoon sunset, he's taken out by the overseer of the, you know, whoever owns the, the wider territory, European, uh, has employed a Scotsman as overseer, a guy called Andrew Brown. And he takes young, enthusiastic Charles Darwin out for a bit of a tour of the territory. And it's there and then, on that early even, late afternoon, early evening of a day in January 1836, that Darwin comes face-to-face with a duck-billed platypus. Now, by this point in his tour of the world, you know, and, and, and when anyone, if anyone thinks about Darwin and the origin of species and all of the rest of it, they tend to put him on the Galapagos Islands and all that messing about with finches that he did, crossbills, and that you, everyone thinks about him coming to, up with the idea of, of, of species thriving or falling away dependent upon whether or not they're adapted for the the niche in which they find themselves. You know, you've either got characteristics that work for you, in which case you thrive and have more offspring, or you don't really fit, you don't meet the requirements of the niche, and you tend to have fewer offspring, and, you know, this is how the species evolve, and this is why we've got the, the variety and the variation that we have. But the fact is, it was his connection with... Australia, and it was the encounter with the duck-billed platypus that was absolutely foundational in enabling Darwin to crystallise thoughts that had up until that point and might otherwise have remained a bit amorphous. Now, the duck-billed platypus is one of a class of animal of which there are only two examples. They are the monotremes. Monotreme is... Two, two old words that mean one whole. The monotremes have one orifice that serves the function of reproduction and getting rid of bodily waste. Okay? One whole, monotreme. You've got duckbill platypuses, and the only other is the echidna, which is a kind of a... It's a kind of a hedgehog. It's a little, a little critter 
with its back covered in spines. But it's a monotreme as well. And that's it. Echidnas and, and platypuses, they're the monotremes left on the planet. And Andrew Brown, the Scots overseer, Darwin was watching, they were in a river. They're only small. You tend to think that, that platypuses are kind of like otters or something if you've never seen them in, in relation to anything else. But they're, 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 they're wee things, wee, wee, wee titchy-tiny wee things. And they lay eggs. And out of the eggs hatch little critters that then feed on the mother's milk. It's completely bizarre. They're this coming together of viviparous and oviparous, of the egg and, and not. It's so odd. So, and this is how platypus and, and echidna operate. But, so Darwin's watching these wee things swimming in the river. But because they're so small and because they're kind of largely underneath the surface, he's just glimpsing them. Andrew Brown shoots one. Because right? this being the way of naturalists in the past, you know, you wouldn't get, um, you wouldn't get Steve Irwin during his wonderful lifetime operating in that way, but Andrew Brown just killed one for him. And Darwin then spent hours and days poring over the wonder, the curiosity, the oddness of the platypus. And such was the oddness that when examples of, of platypus started being sent back and turning up in Europe, scientists there thought it was a, a hoax, a kind of a Frankenstein's monster of a thing. They thought, they thought seriously that, that somebody had stitched together bits of two or three different critters and, and passing this off as a as a life form, but but no, you know the the platypus is what the platypus is, and when I said that Darwin was completely transfixed, it was because he had been everywhere, because he had been around. He understood that the platypus was occupying and thriving within the niche that in North America and in Europe was occupied by the water rat, you know the we thing that's um, ratty in the wind in the willows. He realised that it was doing the same job in the same riverine, watery landscape that would have been the world of the water rat in the northern hemisphere. If anyone had thought of that, they would just have moved on. But Darwin, being Darwin, became preoccupied with how that could be. And the question he asked himself was, why would an omniscient and all-knowing God because remember, Charles Darwin is born into a world that's still broadly enthralled to, to, to the Bible and to creation as explained in Genesis. So he's, you know, he's, 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 he's existing with a foot in both worlds. And he's asking himself, why would a God solve the same problem two different ways? You know, if the water rat was the right fit for that landscape there, why not just have water rats in Australia? And he, he, he subsequently ran across the same conundrum with the kangaroo rat, which he realised was doing exactly the same job in exactly the same niche as the rabbit performed in Europe. He encountered it first with the platypus, but then again with the kangaroo rat, and he was asking himself, why would a god do this? Or, so, and then he thought, well, are we dealing with two gods? <laughs> as it were, you know, a kind of creator in the north and a creator in the south operating independently of one another and one comes up with the water rat and one comes up with the platypus. This questioning, this questioning of how the two different answers to the question could have happened 
It's what put him on the path to contemplating the theory of evolution. It was niches and ecosystems that were driving the success or failure of the of the life forms that are there. And and the niche was filled by the duckbill platypus in Australia, and then the same niche was filled in the in the north by the water rat. And it, it set them off on that path. Because in the modern world, most people now believe in evolution, it's hard to put your mind back to a time when all the educated people believed in creation, isn't it? Yes, and and a lot of educated people still believe it. I think is a is a point worth making. I mean, you know, there's you know there's eight there's eight billion people alive on the planet, and the absolute acceptance of the theory of evolution it, it, it's not the same for all eight billion people. It's, it is interesting and probably important and instructive to remember that there are also billions of people who who still subscribe to well alternative explanations. We in the what we would describe as the rational scientific post Renaissance modern world, uh, broadly speaking, it's about evolution, and we have scientific in inverted commas explanations for everything. But that's us in terms of the necessary humility to. I would say properly investigating what it means to be human and alive whether you accept how other people think you at least have to know that they think that way you know Wade Davis a Canadian anthropologist said something to the effect of that other peoples of the world are not failed attempts at being you on the contrary they are unique answers to the fundamental question of what it means to be human and alive you know, so there are peoples in the Amazon rainforest, and there are there are peoples on the on, on the high steps of the European Asian plains that have a cosmology that is on separate tracks to where we are. And you know, not everyone is subscribing even to this day to Charles Darwin's Origin of Species and 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 the theory of evolution. It was twenty years after he came back from the Beagle and from Australia and all of the rest of it before he published. Uh, you know, a lot of thinking was, you know, was was required by him. And but as as he as he as he came forward, you know, when he when he published, he was regarded, amongst other things, as the most dangerous man in Britain. And famously, the headlines short-circuited his thinking and said that you know he was saying that you know man was descended from apes, and that for people that believed in in the perfection of the biblical creation story, the very idea that we were related to monkeys <laughs> was, a, was blasphemous anathema you, to, to people of faith. Uh, you know, and it still sits uncomfortably alongside an understanding of the universe that's still there. There's no point in trying to dodge the fact that there are millions of people alive in the in the modern world of, of rational Europe and North America, if you like, who subscribe simultaneously to science and to the Genesis creation. Which, to me, just being aware of those different ways of thinking s- occupying the same time and space, I find, ama- I find that just enriching, actually. I don't get, I don't get angry about it. 
My motivation is just to be interested in, fascinated by what it is that interests and fascinates other people. You mentioned the great timescales. You know, we are at home to the idea of the universe being 14 billion years old and Earth being whatever, four and a half, five billion years old. And we, and we, we subscribe to the understanding that the rocks and the planet formed and shaped over these unimaginably long timescales and that we've only been here as a species for a couple of hundred thousand years and we, 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 that's, our, that's, our, that's our reality We're a unique species in the universe in that we, unlike anything else before us, as far as we can tell are preoccupied by time the, the counting of you know, one day more, one day less we are aware conceptually of deep time that runs back for billions of years but then we're all, but then we've also internalized the idea of of the big bang which says that until well let's see let's say it's 14 billion years although that figure keeps on shimmering like heat haze let's say there was a big bang 14 billion years ago but it created time there was no time there was no nothing there was nothing there wasn't even, no space, no time, no anything, no void, nothing, no light, no dark, just, and then 14 billion years ago, and time started then apparently. Now that's a, that's a pretty funky thought. So what, you're saying there was a beginning. So what was before the beginning? And Big Bang Theory says, well, nothing. Actually less than nothing. Right. Okay, so in any event, we are the species that's aware of time. And I've wondered if that means that because we've only been here for 200,000 years ago, that until we kind of whatever evolved, was there no time? If nothing was paying attention to time, did all those eons of billions of years, did they just kind of come and go like, and then we woke up conscious? Because we're the only creatures as far as we know of in the entire universe that measure time. As far as, you know... And they pay attention to time and record time and speculate about the past. That's us. That's a, that's a preoccupation of us. But anyway, I mean, that's a huge, that's a, that's a great a, a, a divergence from where we are. The point is that, that in terms of the story of the world, Charles Darwin coming up with this, this counter narrative that completely replaced for, 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 for those like him, the biblical creation story that had prevailed for thousands of years, that's a moment. And that, you know, that is why, for many, he was regarded as the most dangerous man in Britain. Because he was challenging the, a fundamental building block of reality. Oh no, it didn't happen in six days. It happened across billions of years. One millimetre at a time. That was potent magic. The dark chamber, the camera obscura. This strange magic may have been known about and used by our Paleolithic ancestors, Aristotle, Ibn al-Haytham and Leonardo da Vinci all explored its mysteries and workings in their own ways. In the 19th century, the first permanent ghostly images start to appear. The term photography is coined, and with this new power, 
we are confronted by our nature and its consequences like never before. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. I have a new website address, an easy one for this complicated time of ours. It's just neiloliver.com. Check out my shop for series merchandise, t-shirts, mugs, hoodies, all of that. My Instagram account with interesting daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.